Hi, this is Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida. I hope you enjoy the following interview. And if you have any ideas for books, please drop me a line on my website at plantspeoplelove.com. Greetings from sunny Key Largo, Florida. I am Trisha Keffer, a host for New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. Today's guest is Jason DeWeese. And the book is Designing with Palms, published by Timber Press in 2018. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tricia. How are you? Good. Uh, Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a horticulturist at Flora Grub Gardens in San Francisco. Uh, We are a retail garden center in the southeast part of San Francisco. I'm a California native. In fact, I'm a San Francisco native. Um, And I have been working with palms uh, continuously in, uh, for the last several decades and uh, working professionally with them um, in the last 15 years or so. And uh, I've been fascinated by palms, I believe, since I was a child, as I, as I look back. And what was your motivation for writing this book? Florida Gardens is a nursery that is centered on design. So it's a place that has a really special shopping experience that is cause well is is one of experiencing beautiful vignettes of gardens um, plants assembled together for the design impact that they make along with pots and furniture um, and spaces that are beautiful with art and um, within a, a building designed for our nursery and the customers who come into the store are often people who haven't had a long experience in gardening and become excited about gardening as a design medium because of how, um, uh, of how our store is arranged and how carefully merchandised it is. And so we um, began when Flora Grubb and her business partner, Saul Nadler, bought a tiny nursery in San Francisco's Mission District called the palm broker. Um, the palm broker was uh, just basically a lot with big palm trees uh, and some small palms that the owner would bring up from Southern California and sell to homeowners and landscapers and designers in San Francisco and the Bay Area. When Flora and Grub, Flora Grub and uh, Saul Nadler took over the palm broker, they turned it into a beautiful little neighborhood garden center and retained the palm selling side of the business and quickly discovered that it was a really important source of revenue for their fledgling business in 2003. 2005, Saul bought um, a piece of property in Southern California along with a business partner and called it East West Trees, and that became a place to grow palms. So when when I joined Flora Grove Gardens uh, back in 2007, um, part of the magic of the the layout of the nursery is that we have these large palm trees um, that help to create and define the space. Um, we also, of course, have smaller palms as well. And it became quickly apparent that there was a place in the world for a book that would help people to use uh, this plant material. And in particular, here on the West Coast, where Palms can be um, 
uh, controversial, <laughs> let's say, especially in Northern California. Um, and people are unaware of the wide array of palms that are actually viable um, and useful in our area. And so I, I set out to, to create a book that would serve uh, gardeners, uh, landscape architects, landscape designers um, with information about palms, but also with um, lessons from uh, areas where palm gardens are regularly carefully designed, um, including the Bay Area and Northern California. Um, and so the, the book just sort of appeared as an idea when working with um, customers on in my daily job because of course when i'm talking to people i'm telling them how this plant is going to perform and what forms it's going to take what textures it's going to have what sounds it's going to contribute to the space etc and um it seemed like there was uh, enough material there conversation after conversation um, to make a book out of it Oh, I want to go back to the point you just made. What sounds can palms contribute to a landscape? Well, one of the interesting things when when in California, especially in Northern California, um, there there really are at least historically have been only about five palm species used regularly, um, and and so people aren't quite as conscious of. The variations among palms. For example, people don't even know that there the palm family, which has 2,500 species, ranges from tiny little understory plants to vines to to veritable trees. Um, and each species has its own sonic signature. Um, the 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 way that the fronds move in the wind, um, the shape of the fronds, the stiffness, the the softness. Um, certain palms will give off a, a slight rustling at the at the littlest breeze and others um, it takes quite a gale to get them to um, you know rub against each other and so what we think of most often I think when it comes to the sounds that palms contribute is that rustling that relaxing um, soft rustling sound which is probably the most common sound that, that one hears but I, I've been in Hawaii, for example, uh, in a garden where the native lolu palm um, is is getting blown around by the trade winds. And the sound of those beautiful fan leaves has more to do with um, cardboard, corrugated cardboard rubbing against itself than, than it would to the that soft rustling sound that the coconut palm produces by contrast. Um, so I would basically say each species has its own sonic signature. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't think about that, but yes, it would. So I guess where you place it in a landscape would be pretty important. Yeah. And for example, in, in our area, and there's a, there's a palm called the uh, Mexican blue palm. Uh, The botanical name is Brahea Armada. It's a fantastic palm for, for California and Arizona and, and uh, even Southern Nevada. Um, it's native to northern Baja, California. It has a spectacularly blue, sort of icy blue colored leaf. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a plant that, that grabs your eye. It's a fan palm, and fan palms often have um, a sense of um, an explosion caught by a, a strobe light photograph. The, the, the beginnings of an explosion emerging outward, all the lines of 
of those fan leaves are are um, pushing outward from a center point and then and then sort of frozen in the form of these uh, fan leaves in the crown um, and this palm happens to have a very stiff leaf and so it takes a lot of wind for those leaves to actually rub against each other and make a sound uh, by contrast there is a very closely related palm called brahea clara the clara palm from across the Gulf of California in the state of Sonora, Mexico. And this one has a similarly um, bluish leaf, uh, similar size, but its leaves are just soft enough to rustle against each other relatively easily. So just a choice of species between those two would be the choice between a, a rustling palm and a rather quiet palm. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. And um, before I go into some of the questions, I do want to point out that this book, this hardcover book is beautiful. Even the touch uh, of the embossed cover uh, is, is nice. I, I like to rub my hands on it. It's, uh, it's a beautiful book and the photography is outstanding. I, I'm just so impressed with Timber Press's production uh, and, and the design that they did. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons, of course, that the, the book um, has received awards. Uh, they, the, the love that they put into designing the book is just exceptional. And, and it really expresses uh, the, the different senses available. I mean, it, you, know, you don't think of a book as, as being more than a visual um, sensory experience, but, but having that tactile component does also express some of the ideas in the book <laughs> because I'm, I'm interested in having people really observe and experience this, um, this diverse and very charismatic plant family and, and be serious about, you know, what are these elements that, that add to the design experience um, and the utility of a landscape? Yeah, I like to have it. I have it sit up here by my computer because it's like it's such a beautiful picture. It's like I just look at it and just go, ah, oh, that looks so nice. <laughs> Somebody um, I heard on a, an art podcast talking about um, the experience of stillness as one that really good photography provides. And I thought that was a really interesting observation. It's not one that I completely agree with because I can think of certain art photographers whose work actually um, may freeze a moment of strenuous movement, but, um, nonetheless, that, that frozen moment, uh, it allows for a certain, um, exhalation and, uh, immersion into the scene portrayed and the, and the Caitlin Atkinson's photographs are exquisite and I'm terribly lucky to have been able to work with her on the project, not just because her photography is so good, but um, Caitlin had a, a kind of experience with garden design um, that, that she could contribute um, in the form of ideas. So, for example, one of the gardens that we visited in Hawaii, a relatively young garden, um, we came away from it and she said, you know, that was like a, a tropical cottage garden. Um, and I, I, it just was a light bulb for me. I, it hadn't occurred to me that that was what we were looking at, but in fact, it really was. It was a very colorful garden. It was a garden that actually included a lot of plants that might often be grown, say, as annuals in a more northerly climate, but allowed to grow to their their full size um, and arranged in a in a scale that um, that sort of made sense for um, for the size of the actual garden. Um, and so a tropical cottage garden with colorful palms, 
um, was something I would never have come up with on my own. And, and so not only was her photography a huge contribution to the book, but, but a lot of the conversations that we had um, ended up in the book as well. Well, since we're on the subject of Hawaii, um, I actually was born in Hawaii, so I'm just going to jump over there uh, to that project. Uh, there was another project you talked about, if I pronounce it right, Hale uh, Mohalo? Hale Mohalo, yeah. Hale Mohalo. Uh-huh. Could you talk about that? Sure. Um, so Hale Mohalo is a, um, a garden on the Big Island of Hawaii in the Puna District, which uh, is the district that was recently devastated by the uh, huge Kilauea eruption of 2018. Um, Davis Dalbach is the owner of that property, um, and he is the owner of Living Green Design in San Francisco, which is a garden showroom and design studio. And actually, I've known Davis since I was in high school. Uh, Davis hosts people at the, uh, at the Halle, as they call it. Um, you can even look it up online and stay there yourself. But it is it's an extraordinary garden. It's, I think of it as sort of the apotheosis of a tropical garden. It's everything you ever wanted to see in a tropical garden. Um, it has the, the landscape itself is a rolling um, volcanic slope with uh, large sort of um, lava intrusions that, that pop up around the landscape. But otherwise, it's something of a rolling green sward um, with a piece of remnant native forest. Um, it's an environment uh, with an extraordinary climate. It, when you stay there, <laughs> it's the sort of place that, um, you know, big, beautiful puffy clouds are, are blowing by an occasional shower, um, tropical breeze, never too stiff. And then at night, as you, as you sit down to dinner, the rain starts and sometimes the rain will pour all night long. And then you wake up with the sunrise in the morning and um, the, the the sun is, is popping through the clouds after the rain. There's something about the climate, especially of the windward side of the Big Island, that um, pushes the rain into the night. And so this this garden is, is naturally uh, watered quite generously. I think they get about 90 inches of rain a year there. Um, and Davis, over the last, uh, I'd say about 35 years, has been planting this property with palms and uh, bamboos and tropical fruit trees and um, incredibly colorful tillandsias and other bromeliads, um, orchids mounted to trees. It's everything you ever wanted to do in a tropical garden um, horticulturally. And the spaces themselves are um, very beautiful, sort of generous um rooms beyond rooms even um ballrooms <laughs> in the landscape um and then with views off to the distant ocean um it's about a i think about a 15 minute drive from the ocean up, uphill um and so hale mahalo was a place that i really wanted to photograph and we stayed there uh when we were on the big island photographing gardens so we were able to um to get some beautiful shots of of this landscape and then um, I wrote an essay about it in the chapter um, where I have 14 different uh, American gardens with palms in it. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a garden I really admire uh, because the the love that's gone into it over the last decades is very personal. And it's really Davis's um, vision. Um, and uh, it, it has 
his collector's yen, but it also has this this very intentional um, sort of pan-Pacific feeling to it. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. And I, looking at that and looking through your book, um, it palms grow in a lot of places in the world that I was really not expecting. Even when I was in Rome, Italy, I was like, there's palm trees here? <laughs> well, one of the things that's um, part of my mission is to help inform people about the palm family and uh, the diversity of it, but also the variety of different um, ecosystems that palms naturally grow in. So um, the northernmost population, natural population of palms in the world is in Italy, right outside of Portofino on the Italian Riviera. The Mediterranean fan palm grows there naturally. And um, so, you know, that's almost the latitude of Toronto, Canada, but of course in the Mediterranean basin. Um, and in the Southern hemisphere, it, the palm family reaches the same latitudinal extreme at 44 degrees South latitude uh, in, in Southern New Zealand um, with the Nikau palm, which is called Ropalostylus sapita, the native uh, New Zealand palm. So in terms of latitude and, and ecosystem, those two are, ecosystems are rather different. Um, the, the New Zealand one is something of a rainforest situation. Um, it's a moist lowland uh, forest. And of course, the uh, this Mediterranean scrub of uh, the northern Mediterranean basin is a place that gets a, a dry season in the summertime and quite a lot of heat and then a, a, a relatively cool, moist winter. Um, and then not just not just in terms of latitude, but also in terms of altitude, palms grow as high as 11,400 feet above sea level in the Ecuadorian Andes. Um, that's an extraordinary environment of continuous coolness. Uh, it's a place where um, you see relatives of rhododendrons looking just like azaleas <laughs> in, in bloom. And um, the sometimes the canopy, it, at least in Colombia, is composed of um, a low oak scrub. And amidst these, these uh, Colombian oaks, you'll see this palm, Siroxylon parvifrons, popping up out of the canopy. It's quite a beautiful feather palm. Um, and it's a plant that really doesn't tolerate heat and it doesn't tolerate um, very dry air. Um, and it's the sort of palm that grows quite well here on uh, the California coast, especially in the Northern California coast where we have our, our daily chilly fogs in the summertime. Um, so the, the palm family's diversity of habitats enables people in uh, a diversity of climates to use palms in design. Well, it's interesting. I guess we've let the movies influence our ideas of where palms uh, should be growing, as in only in the tropics. But they, uh, it's really opened my eyes in this book. Going, like I said, I visited Europe, but I was surprised to see them there and uh, all the places you're describing. That there's a lot of uses for palms. Yeah, I mean the the truth is the palm family deserves its uh, reputation as an icon of the tropics, a symbol of the tropics, because the greatest diversity of the palm family occurs in lowland um, rainforest around the equator. So for example, in Colombia, I think there are 80 plus species um, in the, in the Amazon, there are many, many, many species. Um, certainly in Malaysia and Indonesia, you will find a wild variety of species. So for example, in 2018, when I was uh, traveling in Colombia with the International Palm Society on our 
uh, biennial tour there. We were in a Pacific Coast rainforest um, at sea level. And in the course of a day, we could see 25 different species of palms. Um, on the other hand, um, yes, palms are a staple of, for example, Mediterranean cities. Uh, it's a it's a plant because of its charisma, because of its relatively simple geometry. Um, it attracts uh, people's uh, planting. <laughs> People really love just having that that simple form um, in the landscape. And and so in Rome, I think of the Canary Island date palm and the Washingtonia, the Mexican fan palm, um, occupying spaces in highly urban settings. Um, I believe it's the Piazza Venezia that has uh, a, a, a few palms in it and, and really the only trees in that otherwise completely paved and um, masonry space are palms because palms are really good at fitting into narrow spaces with their fibrous roots and yet still um, giving impact with the, the height and the movement and, and that form. Um, and, and so when I think of Rome, I, I think of palms as sometimes being the, the only trees that you see in a, in a very uh, urban center. So when you're designing with palms, um, what are the important thinking about what you just said, you know, in urban areas, what are the important elements to keep in mind? Color, form, texture, uh, what looks good with palms? Um, well, I think the first thing is um, to think about species selection. Um, the, the thing that happens a lot is using palms because they can be um, planted full size often. Um, not every kind of palm can can be transplanted that way, but a lot can because um, they are constantly making new roots from the base of their trunks. And so um, you can you can plant a palm tree, dig it out of a field, and plant it into a new landscape, and and it will recover and um, look good as new within a couple of years. Um, but that's not the only way to use them, and so. Um, using the right species sometimes means starting with a, a younger plant. Um, and uh, this can be frustrating for landscape architects who really love to have a sort of completed look um, within months of, of planting. Um, but it's also worth doing because it will confer onto the space a species that might thrive or produce a different effect um, from the most common plants that are otherwise available as specimens. So for example, in California, um, we have a limited number of um, full-size tree palms available to transplant into the landscape, which thus means uh, a limited, a more limited range of possibilities um, for if you're, if you're only going with large specimens. Um, and in San Francisco and in other places in, in California, there's a disease hitting the Canary Island date palm um, that makes it something of a risk to plant out. And, and that's, you know, the, to, to find another palm of that size with those climate tolerances is very difficult. But if you look to smaller, younger palms, um, then you can actually use different species that will fill the space and tolerate the conditions just as well, if not better than that particular species. Um, so species selection makes a big difference. And, and then um, the other factor is if you're using, and again, I'm mostly talking about um, palm trees. Um, palms also, as I said earlier, um, take on other forms. So one 
palm might grow as a tiny little understory plant in the shade that you might confuse with a fern. Another palm uh, might grow as a shrub like the Mediterranean fan palm. Um, but w- in terms of palm trees, the, the design um, challenge is to accommodate um, that rosette phase, the young phase of a palm in a landscape as it develops its crown on the ground level. And then to anticipate what you're going to do with the space that it clears as it rises up and the crown lifts off from the ground plane and up in, in, into higher um, altitudes, so to speak. Um, so the, the rosette to tree progress uh, progression is an important thing to factor in if you're designing with younger palms. Um, so those are, those are some of the things that, that I caution people or advise people about. Um, and the, the thing to think about is what the contribution is. So, um, it's, it shouldn't necessarily be a disappointment that this, um, fairly unusual palm species that you might have chosen is going to function as a foliage element for X number of years before it becomes the tree that you ultimately want to see. Um, that foliage element has its own qualities and its own attraction. And so, for example, at the San Francisco Botanical Garden in Golden Gate Park, um, there is a planting of the uh, Chilean wine palm, which is the palm with the the thickest of all trunks. Um, And the planting is foregrounded with beds of um, terrestrial bromeliads in the genus Puya, um, as well as with some other um, dry-growing perennials from Chile, um, like Cesarinchium. And the, the composition is really quite beautiful because as you walk past this large bed with these young Chilean wine palm rosettes, in the foreground are much smaller and yet to scale rosettes of of the Puya bromeliads, um, giving you a sort of prelude to this collection of very large dramatic rosettes that are uh, slowly gaining in size and eventually going to become um, very impressive kind of uh, vegetable monuments, these these spectacular uh, big palm trees. And and so the, the combination of the simple rosettes of the bromeliads in the foreground and the somewhat more complex rosettes of the palm crowns in the center uh, is is really effective. And in the book, I have a photograph of a bed designed by Raymond Jungles at the Fairchild Tropical Botanical Garden in Miami, um, in which the foreground uh, of the bed is Alcantarea bromeliads. The midground is a series of encephalardos and other large cycads. And then the background is a series of Bismarckia nobilis, um, a very large and dramatic um, blue-gray uh, fan palm from Madagascar. It's the same effect of um, a progression of rosettes uh, rising upward. And, and that's just one way of sort of combining. Um, another totally different um, combination would be at the uh, Riverbanks Botanical Garden and Zoo in Columbia, South Carolina, where um, a planting of the the native needle palm and the native uh, dwarf uh, palmetto, sable minor, is, is done underneath a, a canopy of ginkgo trees. Um, 
Ginkgo trees, of course, are deciduous, and in habitat, a lot of palms do grow with deciduous trees. Um, and the combination of the bold simplicity of the large fan leaves on the ground with the fine texture of the the ginkgo tree leaves is is really quite beautiful. And then to have that persistent greenery down low with the imagine the golden yellow of those those little ginkgo leaves sticking to the the fan leaves as they come down in the fall after a rain. Um, the combinations of palms with other plants are almost endless because palms grow with so many different kinds of plants in habitat. Yeah, you've got quite an endorsement here on your front cover um, from Raymond Jungles. Contains virtually everything you need to know about these plants and their usage in gardens. Uh, This is a go-to book. (laughs) I was quite flattered that he uh, agreed to to blurb the book. Um, So tell me more about the Naples Botanical Garden um, and the design uh, process uh, with that. Why do you like that particular garden? Why was it in the book? The Naples Botanical Garden on the west coast of South Florida um, is centered in a restored native habitat. Um, I I believe that that's sort of the western extent of the Everglades. Um, And what is achieved there is an experience for the visitor starting with a very tight, structured um, entrance gate and... um, corridor uh, where one walks through a kind of um, metal loggia um, flanking a sunken garden with a very diverse planting of representative tropical plants from around the world um, flanked on the outside, on one side at least, by a planting of a particular palm uh, called Dipsis cabidae, which is a very elegant um, clustering feather palm with stems resembling a, a large blue timber bamboo and, and beautiful feather leaves. Um, coming through that corridor, uh, which uh, can take anywhere from five or three minutes to walk through to 20, 30 minutes, depending on how closely you're looking at the plant material, um, and, and paying your fee and, and coming into the center of the garden, um, you, you, you pass through that corridor, you, you come out into, um, more expansive spaces with other buildings, uh, to your left and, and a little bit to your right. Um, but those, those more expansive spaces are beautifully structured, um, much more, um, rounded in their in their in their forms but nonetheless uh very clearly structured by the human hand um to the right is uh the brazilian garden designed by raymond jungles in homage to roberto burley marx the celebrated uh landscape architect horticulturist and artist um of mid-century brazil where he has where raymond jungles has created uh, a platform um, above a an elevated pool um, with almost an infinity edge um, that pours down into a ground level pool, surrounded by exclusively Brazilian plants, including a wealth of palms. Um, that platform up above is centered on 
a mosaic piece that uh, Roberto Burley Marx created. And um, the, the entire experience is almost theatrical because that platform um, puts the visitors on stage to some extent and, and offers them a view out into this uh, lower uh, ground plane with the, the spectacular vegetation from Brazil all around. Um, and there are other really um, themed gardens at the center of the Naples Botanical Garden. But as you progress outward from the center, starting with that very narrow feeling of the corridor, the very modern uh, structured space out into these more circular spaces, and then progressing further, your views open into the restored native vegetation and habitat. And the way that the garden um, designers, of, of whom I believe there are at least five um, who collaborated, including Raymond Jungles and Made Vijaya, um, the, the native vegetation appears in the distance with the slash pine, with the, the native sable palmetto, the state tree of Florida, the saw palmetto, which is the per perpetual companion of the pine woods in, in Florida. Um, and the, the plantings in the foreground, uh, as you make that, that movement are also native Florida plantings, but, but put together with a density that pleases the visitor that the kind of exotic, um, most charismatic flora close in, um, distributed out, um, scattered out almost in a Doppler effect, um, farther into the native vegetation. And then you can make your way all the way out into the restored native vegetation where the plantings are done in a, in a manner um, that replicates their distribution in a spontaneous habitat farther beyond. And so, so not only is it that progression from the highly structured um, exotic center to the seemingly sort of stochastic or um, unstructured native vegetation outward, but it's also that the entire thing is a garden. And, and I, I think it's important for us to think about restored native habitat as a garden, um, as an intentional human-assisted um, space. Um, we can get it started, and it, and it can go off on its own without much of a, a human hand, but there will always be some intervention that we need to do to maintain um, the native vegetation that we seek to perpetuate. Um, a little bit of weeding, perhaps um, replanting of certain rare species that require a little bit more help. Um, certainly in Hawaii, um, some of the, the plants that, that require uh, certain animals that have gone extinct to be distributed and um, planted out. Uh, the, the human hand is an important part of these restored native habitats um, near human settlement. And so I just love that the, the botanical garden itself encompasses restored native habitat. Um, is there any, is wildlife, uh, when the habitat's restored, is wildlife moving back into that area? Absolutely. And the thing about it, to the Californian's eye, it looks as though it's always been there. And the sounds of birds and the I'm sure that you know, there are alligators that have entered into the water. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't guarantee that, but <laughs> I, I can't imagine they have not, um, knowing how, um, how alligators get into every little canal in, in South Florida. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the animation of, of the space by the animals is, is a part of the joy of being, of being in it. And of course those animals then 
are um, occasionally um, found in the in the center. And I, I can't, I, d- I doubt that the alligators are, but <laughs> the the other the birds um, do come into the center of the of the botanical garden. Well, just as a side note, it was uh, I've seen in a paper a, a photo of an alligator in somebody's swimming pool. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it, my my mother grew up in Florida, and she remembers playing with baby alligators at her cousin's ranch up in Central Florida. They're, they're, they're an intimate part of the landscape if you know how to deal with them. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, in that note, let's skip down to Key West just for a minute okay. to Pat's garden. To Pat's garden. Yeah. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, um, I actually just saw Pat yesterday. So Pat Tierney is a landscape designer in Key West. Um, he grew up in Miami and um, he lives in a lovely house in Key West with a very, very small garden. And as a San Franciscan, I really wanted to photograph um, a a small tropical garden, an urban garden. Um, and and Pat's really epitomizes that in the book. Um, the one thing that uh, really appeals to me is that Pat is able to have a variety of plants in this small garden and yet retain a coherent feeling, partly because, he uses um, several palms that repeatedly in, in the landscape. So he has, for example, um, Adenidia marillii, which is known as the manila palm or the Christmas palm, um, which is a, a medium, small palm tree um, as a sort of theme plant. Um, and so it, it stays relatively short, um, doesn't get much beyond about 20 25, 30 feet in his landscape. And, and thus, uh, within the realm of, of our scale as humans, um, those, those leaves are still easily visible to us. And, um, and they, they cast, uh, some shadow into the garden. Um, the trunks aren't very thick. They're nice and smooth. Um, he also has the Fiji fan palm, Richardia Pacifica, um, as another theme plant. And it's so happy there in Key West that it actually self-sows. Both of those species do self-sow uh, into his garden and he selects out a few here and there to allow to grow. Um, and then when you're in his small pool, swimming pool, um, you look up and you see the tallest palms popping up behind the house uh, and they kind of expand the space. They they take possession of part of the sky for the garden on behalf of the garden um, and they, 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 they help to expand the envelope of the garden. And that's something that palms do in a lot of small gardens is they, they capture the space up above and they, they animate that space with their moving leaves and their swaying trunks. And they give you something to look up at. Uh, they, they even, if planted densely or if large enough, will provide canopy for a small garden. Um, and, and a small garden sometimes needs to have something going on up above that doesn't steal all the sun out of the, out of the garden, especially in cooler climates like ours in San Francisco. But even in Key West, um, when you're swimming in that swimming pool, it's kind of nice to have the sun shining down on you rather than be in amongst shadows. Um, and the palms really help because the crown of a palm is not going to cast the same sort of shadow that a ramifying tree does with its canopy. Um, and of course the leaves of a palm are, um, much easier to pull out of a pool or off the pool deck <laughs> when they fall down. Um, but that effect of, of being in the pool, which I was in, in April when I was, uh, when I was in Florida 
and looking up and seeing 30, 40 feet above uh, the crown of a Tychosperma elegans or a Vichia aracina, um, those the, the looking upward and, and being in the garden, you feel you feel I don't know somehow like uh, the garden is bigger, um, and you feel more sort of enclosed and protected, but also elated because your your imagination flies up into the crown of that of that palm, even if unconsciously. And then you can also hear the sound of it. And of course, you're, there you are, the, the lapping of the, of the water on the sides of the pool and the rustling of the palm fronds um, up above. So, I mean, you've got a, at the, at the back of the book, it's like everything you could need to know about palms. Um, how can professionals and, and non-professionals use your book? Well, the, the book has um, two chapters that talk about the themes um, and effects that palms have. The first chapter, I allocate the, uh, the sensory effects, the aesthetic uh, components that the palms contribute. Um, and so that includes something like sound, um, texture, um, using different trunk textures in the space, um, just being very conscious about the different elements that palms contribute aesthetically. And then the, the, the next chapter talks about the themes um, the stories that palms tell, the um, the the kinds of uh, moods that you're trying to achieve. So, for example, there's a photograph from the Naples Botanical Garden of a Balinese-style garden that Made Vijaya created, and in it, um, the plant components speak to that uh, mood setting, um, or they help to set the mood. Um, one of the palm, one of the palms there is uh, called Liquala, and it's a a beautiful fan palm with an almost complete fan leaf, um, an almost undivided fan, the way uh, an actual fan looks um, in the foreground. And it's native to Southeast Asia and Indonesia. Um, And above it is Ficus religiosa, the bow tree, um, the tree of enlightenment. Both of these are theme plants that evoke that particular mood um, that that garden intends to. Um, So there's just, for a professional Going through those chapters helps to um, address the the functions that palms can have in a garden. Um, in that, in the preceding chapter with with the the aesthetic components, you can also think about scale. You can think about um, you know is a is a hedge what a palm needs to do in this space? Do I want to have a bamboo that isn't quite so messy? Well, maybe I'll use a clustering palm instead of a bamboo. Um, and then in the in the the thematic chapter, the stories that palms tell. Um, if if you want to evoke something like a Japanese garden, then perhaps the uh, windmill palm is the the right plant to use because that is a classic of Japanese gardens, um, Trachycarpus fortunii. Um, so the the those are two chapters that contribute to the designer's toolkit, um, and then the chapter that has fourteen garden essays uh, gives just examples of the many different ways that designers from South Carolina to Florida to Hawaii, South, uh, Southern California, the desert, and uh, Northern California have used palms in their landscapes. So um, just a lot of inspiration and a lot of ideas um, that are worth looking at. And then the back of the book consists of a portfolio of common and uncommon hardy palms. So the common palms include 
a lot of the classic tropical palms and subtropical palms. Um, and then for in service of um, us West Coasters and, and more northerly latitude dweller, dwellers, um, I included almost every hardy palm that's available on the market. Not oh, not every one, but, but a good array of the hardy palms that are available on the market, some of which are these cool growing palms that are specialties of the West Coast. Um, and so I, I hope that those folks who who do design um, in areas ranging from you know, Vancouver, British Columbia, down to uh, coastal Southern California, take a look at the book because there are some plants in there that only we can grow here on the West Coast. Well, let me ask you, do you have a favorite palm? Um, <laughs> well, I do know that a lot of of people who grow palms and collect palms, people in the Palm Society, for example, will say whichever one I'm looking at at the moment. Um, but but I do I do have a soft spot for um, the native Hawaiian genus Prichardia, the Lolu palm. Um, there are 25, maybe even more species in Hawaii of this uh, beautiful fan palm genus, ranging from pretty short little palm trees to uh, 100 100 foot um, tall palm trees ranging from um, low kind of brackish lagoon areas on on the leeward side and southern side of the big island of Hawaii all the way up to cloud forest environments say 4,000 feet above sea level on Kauai and Maui on the big island um, it's a it's a it's a genus that has been decimated by the introduction of rats and by um, habitat uh, destruction in Hawaii um, but it's a it's an exceptionally beautiful group of palms. Um, the most commonly grown species in that genus happen to be from the South Pacific. In fact, there are a couple of species native to Tonga and Fiji and um, French Polynesia and the Cook Islands. Um, and those those ones from Fiji and Tonga are uh, commonly grown. I mentioned one of them in um, Pat Tierney's garden in Key West, Prochardia Pacifica, the Fiji fan palm. Well, Jason, I'd like to thank you. Um, this has been so insightful uh, today. Thank you for being here. I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, can you tell our audience, what are you working on now? You know, I am not actively working on a book right now, but I have a couple of ideas that I would love to develop, perhaps into a book. One is um, to look at California natives in designed landscapes um, in California, we tend to use our natives in more naturalistic landscapes. And I would love to illustrate how beautifully California native plants can be used in more intentionally designed landscapes. That is to say, landscapes that really function um, for people's use um, and leisure in particular. Um, I, in England, my first ever visit to England was just changing planes at Heathrow. And in, in doing so, I got onto a little shuttle bus to go between terminals and we uh, the only plant i saw the entire time <laughs> was a california native called garia elliptica the tassel bush uh just tucked into a little pocket in some concrete uh passageway that the that the bus was going through and i thought well isn't that amazing i'm i'm you know however many thousands of miles from home and the one plant i get to see in in the garden aisle is a california native um and i i just love to see that elsewhere um both in california and beyond because um california native plants contribute so much to the ecology around us and they don't have to necessarily 
uh, look as though they're scattered across um, a native um, space. And then another uh, book idea I have is uh, to collect essays and stories by people who have lived through the transition from um, letter writing to email and text and DM and all of the digital um, writing that we do. So I think it would be very interesting to hear people's stories about about what it was like to write letters to all of our friends and family um, when we were away from them, and then what it's like now to have this instant writing medium available to us that's so ephemeral and sort of the physical components of, of writing on paper, the handwriting, the, uh, the paper quality, um, the incidents that occurred when um, the timing between letters um, was off or just things that happened in between the several days that would pass between um, letters. Uh, I, I just think that, that it's so it will be unknown to future generations what it was like to regularly handwrite letters onto paper. Uh, also, of course, typed letters are, are of interest too, but um, I think that would be an interesting compilation. That would be because, um, well, I'm not that old, but yeah, I still I remember writing letters to my friends um, over the summer. There was one in particular and uh, we were encouraged to have pen pals. So um yeah, uh, it's a little bit of a lost art now. Yeah, I mean, it, I remember in, in high school, we were encouraged to just pick a town in, in our French class in France um, where you would just sort of write to a, a lycée, a high school, um, to try to find a pen pal. And occasionally we, we landed on a target and we'd, you know, people would develop um, transcontinent, transoceanic uh, relationships um, just over, you know, paper, <laughs> paper and a, and a stamp and an envelope. Um, and, and then the, the, the literal hand, I mean, the, the way that people express themselves in handwriting naturally, I think is fascinating. And, and that's certainly not something that we get out of our digital, um, text sphere that we inhabit. Um, and at the same time, I think there's something to be said about the way we dwell in the, in the textual world now, even if it's ephemeral, writing. Everybody is writing stuff all the time in a way that we weren't so much back when um, writing required a different um, medium in which to do it. So writing and palms can be transcontinental. <laughs> it's true. Find your palm pen pal out there. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. write them a long email. <laughs> uh, well, again, uh, the book is Designing with Palms. And uh, thank you for being here today, Jason. Thank you so much, Trisha.